This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. Now, I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, with the Crystal Plumage. And in the virtual studio, my usual co-hosts, Sally Christie and Flick Ford, are taking a well-deserved week off. So I'm joined by our semi-frequent special guest star, Emma Westwood, and her week of wonders. (laughs) You found me loitering out by the back door and, you know, thought she needed to be brought in from the cold. (laughs) Just as a vampire (laughs) was about to descend. Um, But please stop bleeding on the flowers. Um, About eight people (laughs) are going to get that joke. Um, As Melbourne enter our seventh month of coronavirus battling lockdown measures, thankfully slightly lighter than they've been for the last month, we're getting there, folks. Uh, as Triple R are your station in isolation, we here at Primal Screen have been bringing you our ISO specials, spotlighting fantastic films from all sorts of eras, genres, and nations that you, yes, you, dear listener, can stream or rent in your very own homes. Tonight, Emma and I will be hopping into the Wayback Machine and setting the clock to 1970 to shine a light on films turning 50 this year. First, We'll meticulously plan a Parisian heist with Alain Delon and Jean-Maria Volante in Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Circle Rouge, or for those more uh, Anglo-inclined, the Red Circle. Then we'll trudge through the hills of Mexico with Shirley MacLaine and Clint Eastwood in Don Siegel's rollicking Western comedy adventure Two Mules for Sister Sarah. Then we'll end with a head trip as a criminal meets the counterculture with Mick Jagger and James Fox in the startling debut film from Nick. Nicholas Rogue and Donald Camel, called Camel Performance. Also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So now it is time for the Primal Screen News Bulletin for the week. First, some tragic passings of some cinema greats. Michael Chapman, the genius cinematographer who started his career as a camera operator on films such as The Godfather, Clute, and Jaws, before graduating to director of photography on The Last Detail, Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, The Lost Boys, Scrooged, and so many more, even directing a trio of films, including the early Tom Cruise vehicle All the Right Moves and The Clan of the Cave Bear, passed away from heart failure at the age of 84. We also bade farewell to the half-French, half-English actor Michael Lonsdale, a familiar face from over 100 French films, including Francois Truffaut's Stolen Kisses and The Bride Wore Black, but who also appeared in Chariots of Fire, Remains of the Day, John Frankenheimer's Ronan, Steven Spielberg's Munich, but was perhaps most famous for two roles on opposite sides of the law, 
First, doggedly chasing an international assassin as Deputy Police Commissioner LaBelle in the Day of the Jackal. And secondly, taking on James Bond in space as villain Hugo Drax from Moonraker. Ah, oh, amazing. <laughs> I love <And> Moonraker. <laughs> oh, God. It's a, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm not going to hear anything against Moonraker. Moonraker is great. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> to quote the Adventures of Ford Fairlane, if, if you can't see something nice about someone, make sure they're not in the goddamn room. Uh, and most suddenly and tragically, Yuko Takeuchi, who made her film debut as the first on-screen victim of the haunted videotape in 1998's Japanese horror, horror classic Ringu, and recently played the title role of Miss Sherlock in the Hulu Japan HBO Asia TV series, was found hanged in her home just eight months after the birth of her second child. The circumstances surrounding her death are as, are as yet unconfirmed, and Takeuchi was just 40 years old. Mm. Quite, quite shocking. I did know that, um, Paul. That's actually really shocking. Yeah, it's awful. Um, in somewhat lovelier news, though, the social media sphere got a collective lump in its throat this morning when it was announced that Joaquin Phoenix and Rooney Mara welcomed their first child into the world, a boy they named River. Of course, Joaquin's late legendary brother. So there's a, and I didn't even know things. they were a couple, so that's the uh, that's a double whammy for me. <laughs> <laughs> the resurrection See? of River and Rooney and Joaquin together. <laughs> this is why you need to tune into Primal Screen News. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that is the Primal Screen News bulletin for this week. Now, just before we hop into our reviews of our trio of films turning 50 this year, we felt like it might be worth just giving a quick snapshot of what cinema in 1970 looked like. A fascinating transitional year between the countercultural 60s and the gritty new Hollywood of the 70s, as old Hollywood had spent the late 1960s trying to wrap its head and hands around the youth counterculture movement, and it was only over the last couple of years that they'd started handing the keys to younger executives and filmmakers, hoping they'd have their fingers more attuned to the pulse than they did as the town's older filmmakers began to take tentative steps into injecting the era's new permissiveness into their old styles. Meanwhile, an entire generation of innovative firebrands emerging from the so-called art house cinema of Europe began turning out work too bold to ignore. Movements always happen over a number of years, but it's not hard to look at 1970 as a bridge between these two worlds, between the old and the new, it was a year that gave us what I personally considered to be the first true American film of the 1970s, Robert Altman's dark military comedy, MASH. Bob Rafelson and Jack Nicholson teamed to nail a generation's ennui in five easy pieces. Exploitation titan Russ Meyer was lured to Hollywood with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Melvin Van Peebles, too, arrived in Hollywood with Watermelon Man. So-called exploitation cinema began for real with Cotton Comes to Harlem from first-time director actor Ozzy Davis, and old-timers like Billy Wilder, Don Siegel, and Vincent Minnelli reckoned with the new era with films like The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes, Two Meals for Sister Sarah, and On a Clear Day You Can See Forever. Meanwhile, outside America, Bernardo Bertolucci, Eric Romer, Elio Petri, Francois Truffaut, Yaromil Yires, Claude Chabrol, Liliana Cavani, and Jacques Demy gave us some of their more innovative works, while mad Chilean auteur Alejandro Jonorowski unleashed his midnight movie sensation El Topo. Polish uh, auteur Jerzy Skolomowski dissected the fallout from Swinging London with Deep End, 
while Brits Nicholas Rogue and Donald Kamel did the same thing pretty darn well with performance. Finally, we saw the directorial debuts of Dario Argento, Vim Vendors, Roy Anderson, Tony Scott, and Hal Ashby, as well as actress Barbara Loden's one-and-done indie masterpiece, Wanda. And so many more we've not even begun to mention. M, what are your highlights of 1970? It's a pretty crazy year when you line it out like that, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I always find that, um, first of all, that kind of, you know, late 60s, early 70s was... I think one of the sweet spots of um, cinema, world cinema, for me. Uh, it's a very in- exciting grab bag of cinema, a very exciting time to just delve into. And I would encourage people to do that if uh, just, you know, start maybe on um, on the little carrots that we're going to dangle tonight and then, Absolutely. you know, work your way through them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's actually a lot of fun to do that sort of thing. Uh, but... 1970, uh, I think that the, the, the turn of the century, um, or the turn of the century, the turn of the decades, always that year, which we're on at the moment, obviously, mm. with 2020. Um, 2020 is an interesting year for other reasons, but um, <laughs> it kind of, it kind of lag, will be dragging along the, the decade before, the sensibilities of the decade before, I would say so. So it's interesting that you, you know, you pick something like, MASH because, yeah, MASH is much more um, clear-sightedly forward-looking in terms Mm. of cinema and it does sort of take the temperature of more of what the 70s cinema would become. Uh, Whereas you get sort of a feel of um, some other films that are more sort of uh, 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 representative of um, the 60s feel. Uh, So you've got, we, we kind of teeter uh with that and um and i think that they're more likely to be and the cinema is more likely to be reflective of the 60s and the 70s um that we look here whereas even when you move into 1971 1971 and 1972 were massive years in cinema as well and you're starting to get to have the the 70s feel more defined at that time yeah it's interesting that's what i would say yeah, I, I mean, going. I, I agree with you. Like, often the last, the first film of a new decade feels very much like a hangover from the previous decade. Like, nineteen ninety feels very eighties in a lot of ways. Nineteen uh, two thousand feels very nineties in a lot of ways. But it's what is so unique about nineteen seventy because I feel like nineteen seventy does feel very seventies in a lot of ways, particularly with mm-hmm. the European stuff, and particularly with stuff like Mash and Five Easy Pieces and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and and um, and you know. And uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem and all this sort of stuff. Like, it, I and think wa- Beyond the Valley of the one- Dolls is more 60s. <laughs> it feels uh, more 60s to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, I'll give you that one. Uh, but particularly, <laughs> like, Wanda as well. Like, Wanda is a very mm. 70s movie, you know. So it's 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 kind of interesting. It seems like the culture was already from sort of, you know, that 67 to 69, beginning of the, you know, the Easy Rider BBS kind of effect is starting to kind of tip over. But... But there's something about MASH in particular that just feels so, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one, yeah, that one definitely, definitely sits out for me. And something like Husbands, too, the Cassavetes Husbands is, um, you know, but it's Cassavetes. Cassavetes was a genre of his own, really. Um, But we're getting these films that are starting to really push the boundaries in terms of what um, people were expecting from cinema. And you're getting films that, are sitting quite um, 
you know, big films or end up being quite big films. Like they're, they're films that we have on our list of 1970s films now. They're not forgotten mm. that um, I, I, I would argue wouldn't be made now. Like they're really boundary pushing in a number of different ways. And something like, for example, Myra Breckenridge, which is has a trans theme. I have never seen Myra Breckenridge and I really would like to. I don't know. Have you seen it, Paul? I rented it for somewhat prurient purposes when i was a much younger man <laughs> yes, yes <laughs> so i yes. don't i can't remember a lot of it to be honest but okay, yeah right. i was like but, you know, 16 or something it was the early night very early 90s <laughs> but yeah i remember being thematics. a bit gobsmacked by it yeah, yeah these thematics are really quite out there and i mean we'll talk about performance later on in the show but that's something that i think buys into that um mm-hmm. You know, really pushing some boundaries that I don't think people that I think people are broaching in a much more different way now. But we're really bravely, at least, venturing into that territory in the seventies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, very I, exciting, I very exciting time. One would kind of like modern cinema to be pushing boundaries in the same way to reflect, just as like nineteen sixty nine and sixty eight seem to echo uh, twenty nineteen and twenty seem to kind of echo sixty nine and sixty eight a bit, and yeah. sort of hoping that form follows function here let's yeah i know yeah but what a decade after that it it was you know after these following on from these films an amazing decade of cinema came about um and you can just roll off i mean i won't even start to go into it because it is just uh it's gobsmacking just watch 70s films people that's all you have to do if you take one thing away from tonight, folks, please just watch 70s films. They're the best. <laughs> so speaking of 70s films, why don't we kick off with our very first film of the evening? Allons-y, faut être en sécurité au plus vite, il n'y a que Paris. Au cas où on ne servirait pas. Merci. Le Circle Rouge, or The Red Circle, from 1970, is the 12th feature film directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. When French criminal Corey, played by Alain Delon, gets released from prison, he resolves never to return. He is quickly pulled back into the underworld, however, really doesn't take long, after a chance encounter with an escaped murderer Vogel, played by uh, Jean-Marie Volante. Along with former policeman and current alcoholic Jansen, played by Yves Montan, they plot an intricate duel heist. Uh, all the while, quirky police commissioner Matei, played by Beauville, was, uh, who was the one to lose custody of Vogel, is determined to find him. Now, Emma, you were incredibly keen, six exclamation points keen to be precise, <laughs> did to, feature I? This, you did, to feature this film on the show. What about this heist classic steals your heart? Uh, what is it not to steal my heart? Um, first of all, I have to say this is an incredibly long film. What is it, about two and a half hours? And I reason reason why it's about two and a half hours. 221. Two hours 21. 221. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I reason why I bring that up straight away is because I'm often a critic of really <laughs> long films. In fact, I'm probably more often than not a critic of really long films uh, because most of them really aren't warranted. And this is a long film and maybe it could be pulled back in uh, a couple of parts, but in general I think that um, 
it's almost the perfect film. I just absolutely adore this. There's something about um, a heist film, the subgenre of heist film, um, sort of falling under the wide, the broader genre of um, crime film that I think works really well as a storytelling device because the whole setup of a heist film, it's just this idea of bringing together of characters. So you have this really interesting character set up, which this mm-hmm. film does, and then the planning of a heist and how they come together. So there's all this kind of engineering that goes into play and that's really interesting in a story sense. Um, and then there's the heist itself, which if um, a heist film is great, the heist is fantastic, which this heist is just so beautiful um and then obviously the aftermath I mean it's just a perfect storytelling arc that these a heist film can do but it's so hard to know where to start with this film because this fits within um first of all the heist film but also within film noir and also within French New Wave so there's a whole there's a whole lot of layers, stylistic and um, storytelling um, conventions that are coming into this film as one in 1970, which is probably, you know, it's a bit later in terms of French New Wave and um, and film noir and, and whatnot. But it, in particular, it first of all, Melville is always ripping on American film noir. That's his thing. He's, that's what he likes. And, and I love the way that he can bring that He's my favourite, or he's one of my favourites, him and Agnes Varda of the French New Wave, um, mm. because I love the way that he takes the American stuff and makes it so French, like so French, but still, you know, it's got that what you love from American um, film noir. And also um, it's he he's riffing on well riffing haha, on a film that um is a very um successful french um heist film called Rafifi which um, from 1955 so that was at that time like 15 years before this film and most notably i think that plays out in the heist sequence itself because i think it plays out about 30 minutes of silence where it's just the character interplay. Um, in this rather or Rafifi? In both of them. Yeah, yeah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's, in both yeah, of them mm, have it. Mm. And it's, um, it's a remarkable piece because I think it really plays into the characters of this film. Uh, what I love about this film, what this is what I love about this film. This might be a strange <laughs> thing to say, yeah. but what I love about it is that it actually has really no women characters in it. The women characters, Mm. it it doesn't even make a play at tokenism, which is what I love um, because I hate tokenism. I hate that feel of token. It just feels icky. It's like, Mm. you know, and I don't feel that there is a role for women in this film. What this film is about is is about the platonic male relationships and the way they play out in terms of the heist, the dependency they have on each other. And usually when you have such um, depth of uh, male relationships in a film, they'll try and play it out in a homoerotic arena. Mm. This film isn't homoerotic in the slightest. Do you not think so? I I I don't disagree with that. I think the first shot of them feels like it's out of a romance. 
It has these oh, long I... takes, these long stairs, and then this sweeping landscape shot across the two of them staring at it. Like it's a meat cute. I, I look, I I agree with that, but I don't feel like it's homoerotic. I feel mm. like it's just showing the depth of their platonic relationship as two men. Like it's it's profoundly deep. I think there's that mm. one stage towards the end where they actually there's a rose exchanged between the yeah. two of them. Yeah. So, but it's it's not on any sexual level. It doesn't feel that in any way. I just think this film yeah. plays I, out that relationship in a way I've never seen before. Yeah, I think um, maybe more romantic, more romantic than sexual, maybe. But there's definitely a connection. admiration. Yeah. Oh, yeah. the connection is the connection is so strong. Um, mm. It is an incredibly cool film. Like it's just so mm. cool. It's trench coats. It's jazz music. <laughs> they go to the heist with white gloves on. There's a and those cool amazing, masks. Oh, the, those the, masks were, yeah. the, were like they were like a blue velvet that fell over. Yeah. you know. So there's and like then, a kind of a, yeah. a eye mask, like a sort of superhero sort of eye mask, and then this black velvet like veil coming off of that's, it. It's kind that's of that's awesome. incredible. But that was that was the mask for the the heist. Just the way the heist plays out and how they're interplay with each other, their reliance, their quiet messaging. I mean, I couldn't do that. My husband and I were laughing about if it was us. We'd be like, what are you doing? Oh, God. You know, it's it's just one of the most incredible buddy films that you could mm. see. It's it's so elegant. It has, a, it has a train sequence at the start. It's just got all the elements that, are, that I just dig, right? So, yeah. I get very, ex- very, very excited <laughs> about this film in every way. I love the nightclub with the the big band that they go to um, and do, you know, dirty, shady deals. It's it's a beautiful film. And it was one of um, uh, Melville's last, if not his last. He, he died Second a couple last. of years later. Yeah, he died a couple of years later and... Um, uh, and another thing, I know I'll let you talk, Paul. I'm t- I, ca- I could talk about this film forever, but Eve Montan, <laughs> Eve Montan, um, I saw it, it very at a time uh, close to this, 1966, so, um, mm-hmm. so four years beforehand. He did a film with John Frankenheimer called Grand Prix, which was, you know, really sort of cinerama, uh, mm-hmm. you know, very flashy action uh, literally Grand Prix, um, mm. racing car Grand Prix film. So a very flashy. He played one of the superstar Grand Prix drivers. To see him in that film and then see him in this fat film, I literally think he is one of the greatest actors I have ever seen. He has he can change his whole body, so his persona is uh, it just embody his whole his whole character like this. He's a broken man in Le Cirque Rouge, and mm. he plays it so beautifully. Um, they're just yeah, greats. This is a film of greats. It's a great film. I say, <laughs> but I don't know what you think, Paul. Maybe you tell me for, how you feel about it. <laughs> uh, for yeah, I mean that's crazy. Four years later, that he's gone from swaggering Grand Prix guy to this washed up and burned out cop. Um, uh, it's long and languidly paced, but is ice cool and classy as hell. Um, very much procedural to me. It's, it's a one film festival of everything that Jean-Pierre Melville is famed for. So yeah. meticulously staged criminal operations, 
coldly composed visuals. Like Melville's never one for color. It's 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 weird. Like I mean, some of his early films are in black and white, but he never he he generally went with color after a certain point. But the color is always drained out of these films. It's always blues and grays and browns. Um, professionals devoted to their work and terrible at relationships if they're in them at all and codes of honor among thieves. Question, would Michael Mann exist without Jean-Pierre Melville? <laughs> There's a very a definite man blue in this, isn't there? Oh, um, like it's, it's, <laughs> the, it's the Michael Mann, proto-Michael Mann play, but like, yeah, it's like Michael Mann should write a book called Everything I Learned, I, you know, Everything I Know I Learned from Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, <laughs> men of few words, lingering looks, Alain Delon smouldering his ass off. And I think what of what is one of crime cinema's all time great bromances? I think, um, yeah, the Corey. You call and, it a bromance. Um, I call it a bromance. Yeah, I call it a bromance. I'll call it a yeah. bromance too. I get that. I get that. They but it's ride not, and, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not. Yeah, uh, but they are ride and die together to the very end. Um, yeah, I, I like you say. I, I think you know. Look, if you wanted to go into this and edit and cut things down, you probably could. But there's something about the vibe. That he creates and just the this sort of and Michael Mann does something similar and again it's that sort of thing it's just like just letting his situations play out and the minutiae of the heist and what goes into it and all this sort of thing and it's so low fi yet so intricate and yeah it's just a very very cool movie um and I highly recommend if you uh if you have two hours and forty uh two hours and twenty minutes to spare um give yourself over to this because i think you'll you'll really dig it a couple of things about melville one he's not actually officially a member of the french new wave but he was one of the only two older filmmakers that the french new wave liked because the french new wave were like all <laughs> french cinema should be it's all classical tradition it should be burned to the ground the only ones we like are jean renoir and jean-pierre melville um and so melville became a bit of a godfather of the french new wave which is why he's often connected because it's like he's like their sort of their elder you know he's like the he's like the godfather figure um and and his last film he you said you're absolutely right he died a couple of years later his last film was on on fleek um with uh alain delon and um uh natch (laughs) <laughs> no, well, yeah um I'm thinking, gorgeous who, repulsion uh catherine Deneuve. oh catherine Deneuve. yeah yes, yeah yes um yeah that was his last film two years later he apparently didn't get along very well with gian maria volante at all wow they didn't like each other at all yeah, and really volante no 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 uh melville and because if because if, if delon and volante didn't get along that would be an amazing <laughs> no, acting. no, that was no. I think Delon had to play um, go between and really keep the peace wow. in terms of yeah, yeah. This this set. So Jeez. I'm not yes. sure if um, and I can't I can't verify this, but I was trying to look at it. I think Volante might have been speaking Italian when he was making the film. It was sort of hard to see. I'm not sure whether he was actually overdubbed. Yeah, um, right. From the uh, into French, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, look, it's just a stunning cast. I think probably one of the only only things I have to criticise of it is Delon's moustache. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't seem very real to me and I don't know no. if it was necessary, so, you know. But it had the 
the cool music. I mean, there was this bit where um, uh, Belonte is being chased by dogs, and that this music kind of it's the the, the drums and the um, and the 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 horns, and there's mm. sort of a similar kind of feel. It's sort of when things are you know coming to a head. They yep. similar thing when the nightclub where they have that kind of tribal more African dance and this incredible shot where they zoom up to. Alain Delon through the dances and you're just like, yeah. oh, my God, this is cinema. This is it's cinema. <laughs> so if you want to see cinema, uh, Le Circle Rouge is now available on Bema, Bema Film, uh, B-E-A-M-A Film, which is a newest streaming service where you can stream it for free if you have a library card membership or rent it for a small price. So jump onto Bema Film and check out Le Circle Rouge, which is Primal Screen approved. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Now, please join us by the electronic device of your choice for our second film of the evening. Now, what are you doing? I must say a prayer at the shrine. You said your prayers last night, and this morning you're going to wear them out. It's a sin to pass a shrine without praying. Not if you shut your eyes, it isn't. Please, Mr. Hogan. The second film we'll be looking at is Two Mules for Sister Sarah, the 25th feature directed by Don Siegel. In Wild West-era Mexico, we find swaggering but honourable mercenary Hogan, Clint Eastwood, on his way to do some reconnaissance for a future mission to capture and rob a French army fort when he encounters Sister Sarah, Shirley MacLaine a nun on the run and in trouble. Before he knows it, Hogan is accompanying Sister Sarah across the dangerous frontier while she seeks to achieve a hidden goal. Emma, did this feel like a throwback to watching films on network telly on a Sunday afternoon? It completely did. You're so right. Because it was, um, look, it's it's a Western and there's a certain, it's a traditional Western, I would say. It has the feel of a, it has a feel of a matinee Western but um, this one especially, it's kind of that, you know, um, cat on a hot tin roof kind of uh, relationship dynamic going on, you know, that uh, I don't like you sort of, you know, thing. And, of course, you know, they like each other. We know they like each other. But the interesting thing with this film is, um, first of all, the interesting thing in this film is that Shirley MacLaine gets billing on top, um, uh, you know, top billing over Clint Eastwood. Notice at that. At the time. That, yeah. That's quite massive. surprising. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And um, which goes to show where she was sitting at that time, probably um, with connections to the mob with the rap yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one was alleged. willing to <laughs> alleged <laughs> uh, sorry she's, she she's still, still alive. alive Shirley she might um but also Eastwood is only three years back from Italy as well from working with Sergio <laughs> Leone and emerging as a movie yes, star so. yes he was um I feel like this film look I think I in I, look I enjoyed this film but in terms of Think talking about it in a and I uh, look both you and I, I I believe Paul came to this film not having we chose it not having seen it before the show mm. is that correct that's yeah. correct yeah so yeah it. I had it on my viewing list because I've actually been doing um, a little bit of um, Clint Eastwood Western specifically and Dirty Harry 
Western and Dirty Harry, so uh, <laughs> uh, watching. And um, this was so this one was on the list, and it, it, it kind of yeah, it's got a it's got a much more lighter, easily digestible feel about it. I don't think there's anything truly remarkable there. I don't think that there's anything that's really stylistically talking talking about cinema going into the 1970s. Um, but it was perfectly fine to watch. I think what it's more more interesting about this film is where it probably sits in relationship to what Don Siegel, Clint Eastwood and Shirley MacLaine were doing at the time because Shirley MacLaine was just coming off doing um, uh, Sweet Charity with um, yes. Bob Fosse and I think that was meant to be a bigger success than it was. Um, probably part of the reason why she got such big billing. Clint mm-hmm. had just had already done a film with Don Siegel. Can you remind me what that is, Paul? That I was Coogan's Bluff. Coogan's Bluff. So he'd already done a film with Don Siegel, and this was really the second film in what I would consider a, a quite a cinematic love affair because he mm. went on to do um, Dirty Harry was one, but he went on to the next year to do The Beguiled with um, mm. Don Siegel, which I absolutely adore. And I think that in terms of if you want to see Eastwood uh, teamed with Siegel as a director, that's a much more uh, rich character film than this one. This one sort of Mm, looked more caricature rather than character. Uh, And then he went on to do Dirty Harry and then Escape from Alcatraz. So they had a really quite an incredible cinematic history. But also also Eastwood... I was just going to say, yeah, Siegel also had a cameo in uh, Eastwood's first film as a director, Play Misty for me. Play Misty, that's what, well, Paul, you read my mind. That's what I was just <laughs> going to say. Oh, the time, sorry. <laughs> the time for Clint was, this was the time for Clint. This was the emergence of Clint, Clint from his spaghetti, his uh, his his spaghetti dish, <laughs> his spaghetti cocoon, <laughs> uh, and he back to America and as a director, he did play Misty for me in 1971 as well, which mm. was um, a massive, you know, amazing film. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. I think it's, you know, it is flawed, but it, it's very much, it's got a long uh, montage sequence with Daisy Chains and <laughs> Roberta Flack, which isn't such a bad thing. I love that. <laughs> First time nope. ever I saw your face. But, it, it, you know, it, it, it feels 1971. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that Two Mules is sort of more of an interesting film in terms of where it sits in all of these people's career, but still mm. an enjoyable watch. And also I think it shows how Ennio's music is so yes. good because that takes it to another level, I would say. There's a crazy list of collaborators here. It's based on a story by Bud Bedecker, who was who made it was yes. like a massive name in B westerns throughout the fifties and sixties. Um, Randolph Scott, Randolph yes. Scott westerns, which were I'm, a very I'm, big favourite of my great uncles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm shocked that it runs for nearly two hours because Bud Bedecker never wrote anything over eighty minutes. Um, so it started with his stories, and the screenplay was written by Albert Motz, who was of course one of the Hollywood Ten. He was a blacklisted screenwriter, and this was his first film to be credited since the blacklist. Um, so ah. it, it's got some crazy collaborators. Um, uh, yeah, I thought this was a big load of fun, you know, like probably not the most PC film these days, but I loved – I thought McLean is fantastic in very unfamiliar climbs. I think watching her at this sort of <laughs> like fish out of water almost, um, you know, opposite Eastwood, I think they've got really good chemistry. 
Um, Eastwood seems to be doing a Han Solo riff, like like sort of almost like a pro proto Han Solo, like he's kind of the mercenary with a heart. Um, so maybe maybe we could say Han Solo is doing a Clint Eastwood riff. Hundred percent. He's he's doing a Hogan <laughs> from Two Mules from Sister Sarah riff. Uh, yeah, I just I liked I like they're both very personable. Um, it rollicks along. It feels it actually felt to me more like an a, an adventure film than a, than a western. Even though it's got very all the western trappings, it felt more like an adventure movie. Um, I this agree. kind of absolutely rollicking. Yep buddy movie where they crack wise off and bounce off each other and there's unresolved sexual tension and then that get you know uh the the twist towards the end is i didn't see coming but it's quite absurd like when you go to when you think of all the lengths that, that this person went to to act the opposite way and then turns out this it's like it's ridiculous um but it's um but it's I very, no i didn't false, i think that all i have to say uh, yeah. is the first well, the first thing well, that i was... saw of her was her false eyelashes <laughs> oh i agree and i just thought that was a fault of the movie i just thought like that's ridiculous like why doesn't why does she have those eyelashes and then you find it later and that was I, I, that was why when when that happened i was kind of like oh okay cool at least they've explained that because otherwise it would be, you know, I don't know what the nun's doing with drag queen eyebrows. Um, no, eyelashes, sorry. But I did, yeah. No, I, I had a lot of, I had a lot of very, yeah, it's very Sunday afternoon, sitting in front of the telly with dad kind of fun with this. Um, and it's, if, you, if you're looking for that sort of thing, I highly recommend Two Mules for Sister Sarah. In fact, I, I kept watching and thinking, you know what? I reckon Jennifer Lawrence would play the hell out of Sister Sarah in a remake. If you had Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Hemsworth, I reckon you could totally pull yeah, yourself. Cool. Yeah. Um, so if you're. Maybe we'll through, champion that reboot. Yeah. That's a tribal screen approved reboot. If you're up for a Sunday afternoon matinee with Dad, uh, Two Mules for Sister Sarah is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, Apple TV, and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R. You're listening to Primal Screen with Emma Westwood and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. America's a blinding place for nightlife. He's on his way, that man. How much did you give him? Two-thirds of the big one. Mm, That's insane. I can't make that scene. You should have thought of that before. Now back to our spotlight. So we're looking at Performance, which was the first feature film directed by cinematographer Nicholas Rogue and screenwriter Donald Kamel. Chaz Devlin, played by James Fox, is a violent and psychotic East London gangster who needs a place to lie low after a hit that should never have been carried out. He finds the perfect cover in the form of a guest house run by the mysterious Mr. Turner, played by Mick Jagger, a one-time rock superstar who is looking for the right spark to rekindle his faded talent. Emma, once we review this film, does this mean we need to merge and switch personas? <laughs> I'm going I'm to throw it right back onto you. I want to hear what you think about this because I've been rabbiting on for ages at the start of all these films. So what did, what did you think of performance? Oh, thanks, because I didn't write any notes for this one. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm still – I look, I, I've got to say, of tonight's films, three films, Le Circle Rouge is my favourite, but this is the one I want to watch again. There's something about its freeform structure and it's, and it's kind of beguiling. And also it's – 
kind of baffling ending, um, which is notorious. Um, that I just want to, now that I know what it is, I want to get back in there and like look for clues. Um, it's, it's really compelling. Um, it's got that full on 70s, uh, like late 60s, early 70s kind of editing, uh, editing and style and crazy angles and almost like a cut, almost like Burroughs style cut up technique where you've thrown, you, you, you've, you've shot a bunch of scenes, you've th- cut them and throw them up in the air and then arrange them blindly. Um, but it all has its own. <laughs> Um, but it's all cohesive. Like, it doesn't feel like it's like, oh, they're losing their way or they don't know what they're doing. Like, it all feels part of this world and this crumbling guest house. And then this Mr. Turner, who is a rock superstar who may or may not have a deal with the devil. It's, it's very, like, it's, it's kind of, it's hard to tell. Um, but it's certainly inferred. There's a lot inferred here. There's so many, it's neat, it's neck deep in literary references and art references. There's so much going on here. There's also some pretty amazing um, 1970-era sex scenes. Um, it's very, you know, very much of that kind of free love, kind of um, new permissiveness in cinema uh, sort of uh, run. Um, but, yeah, I was – and Jagger is really good. I really liked him in this. Um, and James Fox Playing is a, Jagger, really. Playing well, Jagger, yeah, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's it's hit to the sweet spot. Um, but James Fox is fantastic as someone who's sort of an upper class kind of, you know, was sort of a British acting royalty. Apparently, he and uh, uh, the, one of the, the film's technical advisor, who was like had links to South London gangsters, basically took James Fox and the two of them lived like James Fox lived in South London for something like two months and came back and he had the accent and he had the steely eyed. Uh, and he had that sort of edgy, like, could <laughs> do something violent at any moment. Um, and he's completely convincing. Um, yeah, I just find this, I, I, I find this film really beguiling. What, what did you think? Yeah, I don't think I found it quite at that level. I was more of, a, it felt like a curiosity to me. But mm. um, I'm like you. I think it's it's something that uh, the first watch, it felt really, because it's it's very cutty. Right, yes. it's like very. It, it doesn't have a sense of um, fluidity about it. it although th- there's cohesiveness, as you said, but in terms of the visual look, um, more into more in with the editing. It's it's yeah. very 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 cutty and Through and that's quite quite jar jarring in a sense. Mm. Um, and it didn't really settle me into the film very well. I think that this is probably the film um, that is the most, out of what we've seen, the most of the film of the time, like in terms mm. of the swinging 60s, London swinging Absolutely. 60s. Um, and remember, even though this came out in 1970, it was made a couple of years beforehand. I think it was mm. a delayed release. It was seen as quite controversial. Um, it went through James some editing Fox, issues. Like it, they yes. delivered a cut to Warner Brothers they hated and then they had to go back and recut it, yeah. Yeah, and it's Donald Kamel and um, Nicholas Rhodes first film, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Nicholas Rhodes really put down as a cinematographer. Um, I think uh, uh, rather, I, I think maybe people put it in his name because he's the sort of became the more prominent director. No, um, no, it was very much he, a. I, uh, it was very much a split down the middle. So Kamel wrote right. the screenplay, and Rogue was the shooter. And essentially, they started off like Kamel would direct the actors and would be all about the story, and Rogue would be the technical director and and basically mm, okay. marshaled 
the look and feel, but then as the shoot went on, those roles began to blend and it became very much a co-directing effort. Okay, that's it. Because the, the idea of this, you know, blending and, and losing yes. identity is very actually better. an interesting Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This film is really about, you know, the, 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 the blending of polar opposites in a number of ways, you know, whether it's um, madness and genius and madness or even gender roles. It's a real gender, gender bending in terms of that time um, film. But I and think the notion of performance, me, like of performing yes. gender, performing as a star, performing as a gangster. Yeah, sorry. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, I think it spoke to the audience at the time in a very specific way because of Anita Pallenberg. I mean, she was, you know, really entrenched in the Rolling Stones in a number mm-hmm. of ways. She ended up, <laughs> so I don't speak. know whether she was, yeah, I don't know whether she was she with Keith. With she was, yeah, yeah. She was, yeah. And she there were rumours that children, yeah. There were rumours that those sex scenes were real. So Keith cracked it and parked his car outside the set. And what? <laughs> <laughs> we well, could kind of, you know, as a sign of the times, Bill. This, I felt like that this could be compare. You could compare this to something like um, uh, Blow Up. Uh, the, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Tony yeah. Tony. And and that in in my head sits as a more successful film, but especially in yeah, terms of the abhorrent lead character as well. But yeah, mm. a very interesting film and one that I wanted to go back and look at clips from. So it it, it did something to me. Yeah, absolutely. It does work something on you. Um, so Performance is now available to rent or buy via YouTube, Apple TV Plus, and Google Play. You have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R, and we've been looking at films turning 50. Uh, that's myself, Paul Anthony Nelson, with uh, my special guest co-host, Emma Westwood. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 